I'm Eddie Rowley, and you're listening to My Country Life, a podcast that takes you backstage and into the real lives of Ireland's country music kings and queens. Each podcast in this series features a country star opening up the doors to their past and taking us on their personal journey into the spotlight. Along the way, they reveal their highs and lows, happiness and heartaches, and their struggle to find success. Here we meet Robert Mazel, who was born in Shreveport, Louisiana, but has been living in Ireland for almost 30 years, since the age of 20. Robert spent most of his childhood in foster care as a result of abuse and neglect in the family home. The abuse might have led to a dark, troubled, dead-end adult life for Robert had social services not put him into the care of the foster parents he still calls Mama and Papa Courtney. A stint in the American Army also shaped Robert's life, and it was love that eventually brought him to Ireland where he found the American dream. I'm Eddie Rowley, and this is My Country Life, a podcast from sundayworld.com. So, Robert, welcome. Thank you, Eddie. Great to be here with you. Um, first of all, my condolences on the, the passing of your, of your dad, Richard. Thank you very much, yeah, Eddie. Thank at, you. At the start, that happened at the start of this year. Yeah, it was. Uh, he he died on the second of January. Uh, his his birthday. He would have been seventy six on the fourteenth. So he just missed his birthday by a couple of weeks. It was a bit of a shock, I suppose. Yeah, he um, he he got COVID in America, and uh, I think because of the underlying conditions that he had, you know, he um, was a strong. He was a strong fella, but at the same time, he he came off the ventilator just after Christmas. And uh, his one of his lungs collapsed, so he he succumbed to the disease. But yeah, it was a, it was a difficult time. It was a it was. But still, I, I suppose I'm thinking about him a lot more now than I ever did. And uh, it's funny. I know. I suppose hindsight's twenty twenty. But you know, I did think about him quite often anyway. But um, it's natural that I'm probably missing him more now that he's gone. And um, it's where you get your. Your your music from yeah. probably yeah a lot of a lot of it a lot of it himself and my mother uh, my dad was um, he was he, he was a frustrated artist in in one sense that I suppose he he didn't have a lot of the opportunities that I had you know in Ireland you know to develop my music he he I remember down through the years he had little well, I don't want to call them pub bands, but they were put together bands of different lads that he knew. Because I remember at different times going to rehearsals with them, and he had a great love of music, and he was very, he was very popular amongst anybody who ever saw him. But unfortunately for him, he never got to a worldwide stage. I think if he had of in those days, and you know, back in the seventies, and I think he probably would have been, you know, quite quite popular. But he he he. He had vans and trailers full of equipment, and he had guitars, you know. And I think, yeah, I think he had guitars before he could even play them. <laughs> you know, he, he was he, he loved it. He loved it. And I, and I and I think, as we've spoke about before, I think it's the love of his music and the and my music is what brought us back together after a couple of years of absence. And I'm sure we'll talk about that later as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's go back to to, mm. to your childhood because you had a difficult uh, childhood, didn't you, Robert? Yeah, well, I, I always call it difficult. You know, I suppose it's easy to, to say, any of us to say, well, I've, we had difficult times because, you know, you hear stories of other people who've had it so much worse. But my situation was my own. And growing up in, in, in our house, you know, from my memories as a child, you know, my father was a, a passionate, volatile man. 
my mother was uh, had some mental illness and and temper issues. Uh, my father had alcoholic issues back in the day. So when you put all those things together and you have a couple of young children, I, I was I was born early, uh, which my, my wife now says, no, I can understand that. You know, you have to be first to get there. So I I was colicky. I was. Uh, you know, a cranky young child. My mother, you know, as I said, had mental issues. So the, the, the growing up in that house was was tough, you know. Um, physical abuse at times, and but more so than that, the, the, I suppose the mental, you know, the, the, the mental stress on living in a, in a volatile environment would have brought. So, yeah, it was, it, it was tough. But I, I, I suppose when I look back on it, I didn't have it maybe as hard as I thought I did. Or maybe I've just dealt with it better now than I did back then. I don't. I don't really know. You know, I'm still. I'm still. I'm still dealing with it. And actually, since my father passing, you know, I, I'm still bringing up things that I. I remember things that I didn't. I didn't know before, and sort of dealing with all that stuff that happened. But I still find it hard to say that. Oh, you know, I had. A, I, had I had it tough. But your mother, um, she had two children under the age of eleven months. Yeah, because you were born. Two months premature. Yeah, you have a, an older brother, Ricky. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and she had bonded with Ricky. Yeah, yeah. She, uh, 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 but but you mm. you were in the hospital for a couple of months after mm. you were born, so that bond yeah never happened. Is well, I, th- I think when when Ricky was born, from from what I can gather, when Ricky was born, my mother and father their, their relationship was volatile even at that stage. My father would have been out in the clubs and drinking and partying, and uh, she, she had Ricky. She gravitated towards him like a magnet, and obviously, you know, your first child. Of course, when I came along then, being this loud, you know, unwell little child, it, it created, it, and I took her away from him. Uh, add in the, you know, the other relationship with my father that she had at the time. Yeah, I, I think, well, I remember my, one of my, my mother's sister was telling me that one of the times that I was taken out of care back in the early days, I was only... Well, I was only very young. I was first taken out when I was six months old. But the time that I was taken out when I was a toddler, I was taken out of the house and I had rickets from, from malnutrition and things like that. And, and like I, I was only talking to my mother yesterday, you know, for the first time in five or six years. And I don't, I don't hold any of that against her. I mean, I, I can imagine, and, and being a father now myself of three, having, having a wife who's at home struggling through the lockdowns and all, I can sort of... I, I can't justify her behavior, but I can understand it. And, and I think with time, with age, with experience, all of these things help. But she, she, was, a, she was a hard woman. I mean, she, she could have been violent, and she was vindictive, and she was uh, manipulative. And, you know, there was a lot of that stuff going on. Did she acknowledge that? Yeah, I think so. I, 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 maybe. You know, I, I, she's never, you know, look, she, my, one of my mother's favorite words is I'm sorry, or phrases is I'm sorry, but it never really weighed much with me because I, I didn't fully understand that she understood what she was sorry for. That's, you know what I mean? Because apologizing for something is fine, but you have to grasp what it is that you're apologizing for. And I remember years ago, we were actually down in Nashville and I had met my mother, my brother, my mother and my eldest brother and my sister. For the first time, we hadn't been together in years, and we sat down and we talked, and we pretty much like we're talking now. We, we, we hashed through a lot of different stuff that was going on, 
And my mother was, of course, I'm so sorry. And, I, you know, I didn't want to be that way, blah, blah, blah. But right at the end of all the conversation, she let out this big lie about some story that I knew was completely nonsense. So I just sort of sat back and I said, did you hear anything I said? Were you even here in the conversation? Because now you've taken all of what we've done, all the work we've done for the last couple of hours, and you've completely destroyed us. But I think that's back to her mental illness. You know, I used to think it was just she was mean and she was angry and she was horrible. But it's, it's just who she is. So the social services moved in mm. and they took you out of the, the home, family, yeah. the family home, mm-hmm. and you went to foster parents. Yeah. Mama, um, as you called, Mama and Blackie Mama, Papa, and yeah. Papa Courtney. Yeah. yeah. Amazing people, uh, Eddie, amazing people. And I, I still have memories of, of going to the house, you know. Now, I was, I was first taken into care with Mama and Papa Courtney, when I, I think when I was six months old. My mother had broke my arm as a, as a child. There again, I don't think it was something she'd done maliciously. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was a frustration thing, you know. So I was taken, out, I was taken into care with Mom and Papa Courtney. And, but it wasn't until years later after, you know, living, living with them. And, 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 and my, my journey in foster care was sort of unusual because I was there and I was gone. I was there and I was gone over the years. Up until, up until I was 15, I always, I used to go back and spend the weekends with Mama and Papa Courtney. Not because I was in their care, but because I, I wanted to. Yeah. I just enjoyed them. They they reared something like 35 or 36 yeah, we, children. Yeah, well, in, in the song Mama Courtney, I think we said uh, thir- there's 32. We, right. Know, but we don't know exactly how many there were. But I, I do know at different times, you know, she could have had three or four. She could have had an yeah. infant. She could have had a, a 15-year-old drug addict. She could have had... She, I know when I, when I was there, at different times she had children there that were dealing with sexual abuse and drug abuse. and So, but, you know, I, look, I have children, and I know how difficult it is to mind your own. But this idea of opening your house and letting these children come in from various backgrounds, various races, various ethnic groups, it didn't matter to her. She let, she, you know. And she always said, I remember, I remember there was a young lad who was a bit troublesome when I was there. And a good, a good kid, but troublesome. And she basically told him, you know, she brought him out. He was in the house and she, he was causing havoc. So she brought him out to the front door and she pushed him out the front door. Now she says, where are you? She says, and he says, I'm outside. You're right. He says, what? She said, what happens when you cross that, that threshold? You're in my house. Now he says, you forget everything for the moment, just for the minute. She says, you can't do it all day, but for the minute, forget about what happened out there. Come in here and we're going to start over. And, and, and those little ways that she had of dealing with things. Second she, chances. Yeah, she sort of flipped a switch with that young fella. Yeah. Now, okay, he was, still, he was still a pain in the ass a lot of the time. But I think it got him thinking, you know. And, and, and that's what I sort of thought. I remember in Mama Courtney's house in the, in the front room, there was this big, awful, gaudy, red shag carpet that, you know, it wouldn't go into a house today. But I used to love it. I used to lie, like, you know, make snowmen, you know, like on the snow. I used to lie on my back. And it was just a, a feeling, a place of peace. And Mama Courtney was a religious woman. She was a Baptist. And, you know, she, you know, you couldn't say a bad word in her house because she'd end up on your ear. So it, it was so different from my house because my house was, as I said at times, it was violent. It, you know, the, the routine in the house was, you know, sometimes not there. Mama Courtney was very regimental. She spent time in the service back in the... In the I'm not I'm, I'm going to get the, the war wrong, but back in the day, I have seen photographs of her in her, in her army uniform. So she, she had a little bit of regimental mentality about her, which I think all of us kids needed. 
more so than the average child. The average child is born into that and they don't think about it. But with kids like me and kids who had other problems, they needed to be told where to go and when to go. So she helped shape you as, as, as oh, a kid. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And, and even still to this day, I mean, Leo's two, and on, only yesterday he was sitting at the table and he was flopping around, you know, and I would, I'd be a strict parent. I would, I'd be very fair, but I'd be strict, you know. And I, I've even actually quoted Mama Courtney to, to Maisie many times, you know, and she never knew her, obviously, but uh, only for her, for her strength and her direction. God knows where I could have been. Where was your dad in, in, in all of this, you know, when the incidents were happening in the, in the home and you were taken out and into social care? Into Mostly it? oblivion. He was, that's where my dad was. Really? Yeah. yeah. And, and as a matter of fact, if, if we were, I would, I'd done a, a documentary for RTE radio there a couple of years ago, and um, Derek Mooney was in charge of that. And we actually approached my father, which was a difficult thing, and it was a, it was a hard decision for me to make to, to approach him in that situation and talk about the things that we're talking about now, some of the violence that happened. And is my father's a great actor, and he, and, and he, and he played the part very well. But even so... I would know him better than anybody, and I could see that his back was against the wall, and he sort of, he wasn't sure about some things. Because my mother was doing things, there was, there was physical abuse going on, you know, during the day when my father was at work, he never would have known about. Mm-hmm. Now, there were some things that he'd done himself that he would have known about, and some of the things she did, but there was a lot that didn't happen, that happened that he didn't know about. Uh, and I think later on in life, and through that documentary, I think he found it shocking, and he found it difficult to take. And there was a fear after that documentary took place that it would have distanced our relationship. Because, I mean, my dad did say to me, why, why are you doing this? You know, and, and that's a question that you could ask. Why would I bother doing this? Why would you dig up old bones? But as I said to him, I says, well, look, I says, if I, if I don't say anything about this and just let it run, in, in the next generation... If a child or one of my children or my grandchildren have trouble, I want them to know that this is where it could have been as opposed to where we are now. So I want them to have an idea of how my life developed, you know, from what I, from what I was given. You know, because there's lots of children out there that feel trapped and feel stuck into a situation they can't get out of. And my story was a way of sort of saying, well, look, you, you can you know, and you, there is a way around it. And my situation was by no means, as I said before, the worst. There was, there's poor children out there that will never have a chance. So I was fortunate, and, and that's why I'm telling the story, because I'm fortunate to have these people like Mama Courtney in my life. Your parents' marriage eventually 
broke up. Mm. And at that stage, you had actually, at what the age of 16, you had moved to Connecticut mm-hmm. to work on the buildings with your dad. He hired a, a gang of people to work on a building job yeah. up there, and you were one of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you, you obviously had a very good relationship uh, with your dad. Yeah, it was, it was a funny relationship because, look, my father was, had a very bad temper. He was a hard worker. You know, he, he didn't have any patience. I mean, even working with him was tough. You know, I remember, I recall one day we were, we were doing some work on the house down in Louisiana and we were putting up slabs, in, you know, in the ceiling. And one of the slabs fell and broke. Of course, he got angry, threw the hammer at me. I mean, physically threw it at me. I ducked. It went out the front window. And, of course, he blamed me for breaking the window. <laughs> you know? No, but but I, I also remember the other side of that relationship is when I remember when I was about 14, we were in Louisiana at the other house, and him and my mother were after having a battle for hours, and he was exhausted over the, the physical and mental, you know. And she was probably in the house crying or something. But we were sitting out in the front step, and I turned to my father and I said, when are you going to divorce her? And he looked at me. I thought he was going to hit me, you know. What do you, what do you mean? I said, are you, I said, are you crazy? I said, you're going to kill her. She's going to kill you. I said, this is not about my mother or my father. I said, this is about two people. They can't live together. So we had that, that we were able to, 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 I was able to say that to him, mm. which was what I'm glad for. Mm. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you, you were only a young teenager, mm. obviously, at that stage. Yeah. That's that's pretty awful for a, for a kid yeah, to, yeah, well, it's, to, it's, to witness. You know, I mean, it is. It's it's one of those things that it's one of those things that you don't like to have to think about saying. Yeah. But look, I grew up very young anyway. I mean, being even being in foster care and being what I went through, you know, I was a bit like Muhammad Ali. I was able to take a shot, and it didn't bother me. And that experience in life that I had. Because even I, I remember talking to people, even when I was seven or eight, people couldn't believe that I was the age I was. I grew up a lot faster than I should have. Mm. But when you're in that situation, you know, when you're in a survival mode at, at times, you have to. I mean, I'm sure. I mean, we're here. We're here in the nation's capital in Dublin. I mean, I'm sure there's lots of young lads out in that road out there who could buy and sell you, and they're probably, you know, a quarter of my age because they've they've had to. Yeah. And you do. You find yourself in that situation, but. My, myself and my dad had that side of a relationship, and then look, I, I always wanted, I always wanted more from him. You know, I look at my little fella, and I look at the relationship that I'm going to have with him, or that I hope I sh- I'm going to have with him. But my father was was self consumed a lot of the time, you know, because of his relationship with my mother was bad. You know, he worked very hard, but he had, but I don't think he ever got financially or creativity you know he never he never got out the creativity that he had so he was always feeling a little bit hard done by and and I found that with him all along his life he's married four times uh, and that that's a story in itself you know I, I think as I said <laughs> either either he liked women or wedding cake I'm not quite sure <laughs> which, which it was yeah and he, 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 the marriage broke up in mm. when he moved to Connecticut with you what happened there well, we, we went up initially, I think I, think I was 15 in my, in my memory. I was about 15 or 16, and we went up. He had, a, as you say, he had a lot of workmen, a big contractor company that hired him in to paint loads of houses. So the, the plan was to move up there. Once he seen the, the kind of money he could make up there, he was going to move the whole family up. 
But of course, my mother was back in Louisiana. Uh, we had three acres of land down there, and she had a, she had a horse and dogs, and so I, I, I never forget that she came up at one stage to see us, and that was a volatile trip because I had been living up there with my dad. I'm now a working man, making my own money, smoking cigarettes, having the odd Jack Daniels. I was my own person. You were a man. I was a man. Of course, when she came up, I was still a child to her but not her favorite one. Right. You know, so we clashed, you know, I basically told her to get lost. I says, you know, I, I, you, you go back to where you are because I'm, I'm happy where I'm at. So then, you know, herself and dad, I think they were sort of back together at that stage. But then as the weeks went on, the months went on, my dad was doing better and better in Connecticut, but he was paying for the place in Louisiana. He was paying for the place in Connecticut. So I remember I was sitting out in the living room one day and he had a little bedroom that was transformed to an office. And I could, he picked up the phone and he rang her. And uh, he was talking, and I could hear him saying, you know, Loretta, look, we, we've, got to, we've got to amalgamate things here. He said, I can't afford all this stuff. And he said, well, he said, look, well, I have a house here, you know, and we can buy another house later on, a better one, whatever. And I could, I could almost hear the conversation, but from what I could hear what he was saying, my mother was saying, well, I'll come, no problem, but I'm bringing my horse. And my father, I could hear my father saying, Loretta, do you realize what land prices are like in Connecticut? Because this is this is back when, this is back when Connecticut was one of the richest, one of the most expensive places to live in America at that time. It was huge, expensive. He said, "I can't do it. I can't do it." And she said, well, "I'm not coming. If I can't bring my horse, I'm not going." He said, "Well, I tell you what you can do. You can sleep with us." That's what I heard him saying. He put down the phone. So. And that was the end. That was it. It, it was that was the, the that was the final chapter. Yeah. You know, but it should have happened years before that. Yeah. Now, my mother's never married. She's still a single woman now. She's 74. As a matter of fact, she only told me because my mother told me, she said, if I die, she says, you probably won't come to the funeral. She says, <laughs> this is, you know, I said, well, I said, well look, I, I'd hope to think that I would. And I hope that I don't want you to die. I want you to live forever. And would you? Uh, yeah, I think I would. Yeah. If, if any way possible. You know, because look, it's like, it's like being there for my father. I mean, I, I went over to Louisiana for the, for the burial. And it was actually only just before the last lockdown, so I just got out in time. And it, it, it did give me great closure for him, you know. My mother's situation, and I've said this, and I've said this to a few people who are close to me, that if my mother passed tomorrow, it would be sad. But I could see justice in it, in one sense, for her. Because I look at the life she has now. I look where she's at. She's living in an assisted living place on her own. My brother's away, hundreds of miles away. My sister doesn't talk to her. She doesn't have a partner. I'm sure she has a couple of friends, but she, she has a very poor quality of life based on what I think a quality of life is. Now, maybe to her it's wonderful. I don't know. But I've often said that she's had such a, she's had such a volatile road that when it does come to an end, I hope that she can go and rest in peace. But I don't, I don't want her to go. Yeah. But is, she, I think, is she happy today? I don't know. Yeah. I, I, would say she's, I would say now by looking at her, I just only spoke to her on Zoom for the first time yesterday in, in five or six years. My wife was shocked when I, when I answered the phone. And we were, we were actually all in the kitchen. The kids were running around. And, and I, answered, I think she was shocked. She wasn't expecting to get it. Because she's rang a few times and I wouldn't take the call. Because I just didn't want the hassle. So 
I don't know if she's happy. I know she's full of regret, and I can still see that in her. But I, I've tried to tell her over the years when we have spoke, as I said, I don't want your apology. All I want you to do is to repair yourself so that you can live. You know, look, I've done things in my life I'm not proud of, but I'm not going to kill myself over it. You know, I have to sort of figure out what I did, why I did it, and move on. And that's what she should do, and that's what I want her to do. And I hope that any peace that she has in the last years of her life, I, I hope that she doesn't live with that regret, because I wouldn't want that for her. You know? And then um, your dad obviously moved on then, mm. in, and he got married up in Connecticut. Connecticut. Yeah. yeah. He met Brenda. He met Brenda, his second wife. His second wife. Yeah. Well, there was third. Sorry. Oh, he was, was married, married before He was married before, before my mother. Yeah. Because I have a half-brother, two half-brothers from Nancy. Nancy was my father's first wife. It was a short relationship in Kentucky. I think they were only married for maybe two or three years, and they had two children. And then he put it, I think he was away. He was in the service at that time. So I, I don't think he had much to do with the children when they were little. He was, now, in, the ar- he was in the army, was he? He was in the army many years ago. Right. Um, very similar to me because I was in the army myself. Yeah. As you know, I went in for a year. I'd done my service. I'd done my training, and then I left for Ireland. So mm-hmm. shortly after that, so I think something similar happened with him. Um, he married Brenda. Now there again, look, Brenda came into my life, and I, I I didn't know much about Brenda, you know, and I wasn't really interested. You were seventeen. I was seventeen. Yeah. Right. Eighteen, maybe eighteen at the time, and I wasn't really interested. You know, and because my dad would have been the type of guy, you know, he, he would have been delighted if I'd have called her mama or mother or something. But I, no, I just wasn't there, you know. Yeah. And my, my mother, even though the relationship is the way it is, she's still my mother, and I, didn't, I wasn't looking for a new one. But he was happy. And we, around that time, we, we started butting heads over different things. He was, he was with her. They were living their lives the way they wanted them. I was just ready to get away. I had had enough of that life. And as a matter of fact, when I met Elaine, my first wife, um, probably I think, the, well, I, I met this woman that I had never, I'd never heard an accent like it before. She was, she's from Kildare. And not that her accent's very strong, but being from Louisiana, the only two places I'd ever been was Louisiana and Connecticut. And then I meet this Irish person. And I always say this and people laugh at me, but at that time, if someone had opened up a map and said, point out Ireland, I couldn't find it. I wouldn't know. I had no idea. So I was amazed by this woman, you know. And when we met and, you know, started dating, I mean, I was married to her already. I mean, <laughs> I, I, was, I was gone, like, you know. This is your first big romance. They, oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah I, was, I, was, I was away. And at this stage, you left the buildings. Mm. You, were, you were now in the army, were you? Well, I was in the army when me and Elaine were dating. Yes. As a matter of fact, I only came across some t- television footage from one of the local TV stations of that year. I'm trying to think of the year. Was it 90, 80, 89? I think it was 89. And my unit was going to the Iraq war. It was called Desert Storm. And we were called to Maryland, Fort Meade, Maryland, to go to Desert Storm. Now, I, I, I left the Army then on medical grounds later that year. But my unit went. But I was actually in Maryland on the tarmac at that time, ready to be deployed. And my, and my dad and I'm nearly certain Brenda and my ex-wife Elaine was up. It's all on footage. It was amazing, really? amazing yeah. to see it. Yeah. You know. And oh, sorry, what were your medical grounds? I, I collapsed three or four times. They called it, the, 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 the actual scientific name was that I, I had migraines. 
I had syncable migraine syndrome. Okay. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but that's, but because of that, I was an MP um, and I was in charge of, um, we were in charge of escorting prisoners from different POW camps. And because of my condition, I was, I was given a, a medical discharge. But at the same time, I, I probably wouldn't have stayed that much longer anyway, because now that I had met Elaine, you know, I had sort of had a sour taste in my mouth for America in general. I just wanted out. You know, I had, I had, you know, my relationship with my father was, it was okay at the time, I suppose. But I had done the Connecticut thing. I had done the building thing. I was bored with that. I didn't know where else to go. I wanted to become a cop. That was my, that was my main ambition at that time. But then, like I said, I met Elaine. And this, without her even, she probably didn't even know at the time, but... We were married already, <laughs> you know. Uh, the army was probably good training for you as well in terms I of discipline and I loved it. Focus and, and, <clears throat> and I always say that, you know, if I had my way, you know, when Leo gets to of age, if if there's a place, if he if he can go to America and join the army, I would encourage it. Yeah, because it teaches young people so many different things. I mean, like we 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 teach our children academically, and. But there's there's no there's no other place that I know of that they can get that the, the regimental discipline that that every young man and young woman needs. So that uh, along with Mama Courtney, I said, look, the army was another thing that saved my life. You know, um, you know, in, in the army, the drill sergeant I never forget his name, Drill Sergeant Barnes, was a was a was a black gentleman, and he could do he could do push-ups all day long. He was just super strong. But he was a hard, he was a real hard ass. I mean, he really, really was. And uh, I took it personal at, at the beginning. And I sort of rebelled against him. And I was nearly going to fight him. Now, I, of course, at that time, I'm a little bit bigger now, but sure, I would have been two and a half stone wet, you know. But I really, really sort of took it to heart. And I, was, I took everything personal, you know. And maybe it's because of my upbringing. Maybe, I, I, you know, I was defensive. But I got through my training. And I'll never forget the day we passed out on the... Um, for, for, our, for our ceremony, our passing out ceremony when we graduated, you know, I was talking to Drill Sergeant Barnes. And there was another dr Drill Sergeant there, a guy called Drill Sergeant Gentry. And uh, a couple of weeks before we passed out, he, he had formed a formation, spoke to the platoon. And before he started speaking, he started crying. And tears were rolling down his face. And so we're, of course, you're, you're in the Army in those days. I mean, everybody was tough. And we're like, what the hell is going on with this guy? But he says... I finally done it. And we were all like, okay. He says, I'm getting my dream. He said, I'm going to war. He was going to Panama. So we're all young lads, 18, 19 of you. And this guy is, he's probably in his late 40s, maybe 50, crying. But with such passion, he said, I'm finally getting to go fight for my country. This is why I joined the army. Yeah. yeah. And I think in this part of the world, I'm not saying that, 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 you know, the Irish army, I don't know much about them or, or you know, I'm not saying they're not patriotic. But I don't know whether, would, would there be the love to pick up arms and go fight? Now, it wasn't, it wasn't a violent thing. It wasn't a, it wasn't a, it wasn't a crazy thing that what he was doing. He was genuinely passionate because he'd worked all of his life as a drill sergeant and whatever else he was doing to get to that point. But that's why I think the military is so important. Because it gave, like that, that guy, when, when you saw him, I mean, his shirt was creased to the nines, his shoes were polished, his hair was perfect. You know. You learn from that. You learn from that. You learn 
from from that regimental lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And Drill Sergeant Barnes, anyway, I was going. I was telling you that he after the whole ceremony was over, I was over talking to him, and he said to me, he said, "You found that tough at times, Robert." You know, and I said, "I did." He said, "Well, fair play to you, stuck it out." Because there was lots of guys that came and went during the time I was there. I see one guy committed suicide. Three, we were we were lying. We were on a on a shooting range, and we were lying in the prone position shooting targets with an M sixteen live rounds. And three and three guys down from me. A guy stuck the end of the rifle in his mouth and blew his head off. Couldn't take the pressure. Now I don't think it was the pressure of the army. I think there was obviously other issues there. Yeah. But Joe Sergeant Barnes said, you know, he said, look. You're going to take this experience with you. If you leave tomorrow, you're going to take this with you for the rest of your life. And he was right. Uh, you could probably do Ireland's toughest family. No problem. No problem. No problem. <laughs> well, I'm, no problem. I'm a bit over the hill <laughs> I'm too fond of myself now. Too fond of the grub. And then Elaine, how, how, where did you meet Elaine? I, I, I was living in a house. I had rented a room from a, from a lady that I'd met just through work. And one day I was at the house. I, li- I had a downstairs basement flat. And this woman had a couple of horses. And I, I must have been out doing something in the yard or some one day. But this girl came over to, to ride horses with uh, Beverly, was the lady I was living with. And, of course, I think I was just introduced to her. Oh, this, this guy's... We're in a room here. This is Robert. Oh, how you doing? But the minute she spoke, I was like, where are you from? And it sparked up a conversation. And it seemed like, now we probably only, we probably only went out together for a little over a year in America. But it was just like, wow. Um, Elaine had a flat of her own because she, she worked for a company, actually a Dublin company, called Allied Color. They were a printing company. They had a sister company in Guilford, Connecticut. So that's why she was over there. So we got together. Um, Elaine got pregnant. And, of course, it was a very serious thing at that time. We had to ring home and tell her mother and father. What year was this? What, it would have been around 1990. Right. Because I, I arrived in Ireland in 1991, so it was around that time. Right. And, of course, I, I, I think I'd met her father once he was over, but her father is a very stone-faced character. Very, you know, um, I was, you know, I was shitting myself, him, to be honest <laughs> with you. Um, but I, but I think I was still oblivious to everything around me. I just mean I just wanted Elaine. To, uh, I wanted to marry her. I didn't care. It didn't matter to me. And when she got pregnant, then I never forget it. On Thanksgiving Day that year, she lost the baby. And and it was so funny the way it happened. I I was in such a place that after we went to the hospital, the procedure took place for the miscarriage. And but she were, we were back having dinner at my parents' house. At my, at my dad's house for Thanksgiving a couple hours later. Mm. And we never really spoke about it. Yeah. 
You know, it was, it was something that just happened. And as a young fella, I didn't know, I didn't know anything about comfort or, or trying to understand what's after happening. I hadn't, I hadn't a bloody clue. Yeah. You know, I was only 20 years of age. But you still stayed together and... We stayed together, yeah, we did. And uh, we, we, came, we came back to Ireland then, because I moved, think Elaine... She, she moved. She, yeah, she wanted to come back home. And she asked me, what did I think? My bags were packed already, because I just wanted to get out. Yeah. Now, I, I, I do regret that in one sense, because, from, from, like I said, I always wanted to be a cop, and I left that behind me. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I still, to this day, would you believe, I still miss it. I still watch cop programs as, you know, to pacify <laughs> myself, because I'd, I'd love to have been a cop. But then again, I'm not. I'm not sorry because look at the journey that I've had now. Yeah. So when we we when we got back to Ireland, then um, we stayed together, but it was never it was never right. I don't think. Mm-hmm. I I was out of work most of the time for the first year or so I was here. Couldn't find. Just couldn't couldn't find myself. I didn't know what I wanted to do, and you know. Um, I, I didn't have a particular I, okay. I, like working with my dad, I could paint a bit, I could do this, I could do it, but I was I had no qualification, mm-hmm. so I so I was lost in that respect. And I think that put pressure on us, put pressure on her family. We lived we lived right next door to her, her mother and father, and it, it just I was too young. It was it was the wrong time. But you had a, you had a daughter. We did. We had we 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 had Amy then in ninety four, and there again, but there. You know, Amy is responsible for a lot because if it hadn't have been for Amy, I'd have been long gone. You know, I think I think if I hadn't, I, I would have went back to America. I, I know that my life wouldn't have been as good as what it is now, mm-hmm. but I would have probably went back and probably became a security guard, eventually maybe become a cop. God knows, I don't know. But when Amy was born, I swore that I'd never leave her. You know, I just said I couldn't. You know, and I think I think even her granny, you know, sort of said to me at one stage years ago, should go back, spend a couple of years, develop. If you want to be a cop, go and develop it and do it. You know, it's your Amy's here. I said, no. I said, because I knew enough at that stage to know that if I left her, we would never be the same. And even though I'd be her father, I could come and see her and she could come and see me, could spend weeks in America. I just knew I had to be there to raise her as much as I could. Now, if you talk to my ex-wife, she'd probably say, well, you weren't bloody there most of the time. <laughs> but I was only down the road. Yeah. I was always only down the road. And I remember when I, when I fast-forwarded a little bit, when I got on the road with the music business, and I was starting getting busy with that, I used to go down to Kildare, you know, um, I'd see Amy, I'd see Amy two or three times a week at some stages. And Elaine's parents and family were really supportive. Oh, absolutely. Oh, look, I imagine Maisie now, she's only... She's only six. I imagine her going to America in a few years and ringing me to say, I'm coming home with this American fellow. We're getting married. Yeah. You know nothing about him. You don't know who he is. He could be a serial killer. So I can understand from her parents' point of view, this was, this was tough. And then to see that, now, over time, we got to know each other, and I think they knew my, my intentions were genuine. That, I, that I, you were you know, a decent fella. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, I wasn't doing anybody any harm, but it was tough on them. Yeah, you know, but me and her father butted heads on a few occasions, um, and I never forget. Then one day, finally, Paul came over to me, and he sat down, and basically said to me, "Look, this is not going to work out with you and Elaine. We know that, but you're always part of the family." Yeah, uh, it's probably he's probably a better man than I would have been in that situation because I just told your man to feck off. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. So, uh, 
so me and Lane stayed together, and then we had we had Amy, and we I think we stayed fairly close, you know, within reason. Like, cause Lane was, she she started another relationship, and she's got two fellas, you know, with Donald, who's been a great partner to her all these years. So I, I was quite adamant, and as a matter of fact, it's funny because Elaine's mother would always laugh when when Elaine had her two little fellas. I used to go down. I'd be down some days, and Elaine wanted to go and do a bit of shopping. She'd ask me to mind the little fella. So I'd be pushing the little fella up and down the road. And I remember one day someone on the, on the road stopped, and they they sort of knew me, but they knew Elaine and the, the kids, and they were sort of looking at me and looking at the child and wondering, why is, why do you have Elaine's child? <laughs> you know, but I was only there just minding the child. But yeah. I but I, I grew up with it's, them. It's you a know, good relationship. They're good kids. They're so they're they're teenagers now. Yeah. So. And I, I'm I'm and you know that that relationship that that I had with Elaine, you know, is sometimes tough in a, on other relationships. But I'm glad that I had it for Amy's sake. Like me and Elaine could meet for coffee tomorrow and we could talk about it. As a matter of fact, when my dad died. She was the fourth person that I called, you know, to tell her right. that, that he'd passed away. So it could have been so much different. Yeah. You hear stories. Yeah. You know, as Elaine said, when, when she often jokes that I didn't take you to the cleaner, she says, when, when we got divorced because you had nothing to clean. <laughs> <laughs> and you then know. you actually achieved the American dream in Ireland. Yeah. Even yeah. though I, I know it, it, it was by, by accident, accident more yeah. than anything else. Your dad always wanted to be the guy that you are today in the music business. I think It so, never yeah. happened for him. Yeah. Uh, it was never your main goal in life. No. But it happened for you. How did it happen? Well, I was, I, was on, I was on a radio station just the other day, and there was a fellow that rang in to say hello to me that I hadn't seen in years. His name was Henry Donahue. Now, Henry is from Dublin. Well, he's from Kildare, but he's living in Dublin. He was a he's a pilot for Aer Lingus, but a, a, but that name sort of started the whole thing in one way because I remember years ago Garth Brooks was coming to Ireland. I think it was around ninety four, around that time he went to the point, mm-hmm. and his music was everywhere. But Henry and Henry was a friend of Elaine's family, and he at that time I think he was he was a piano player. Quite a, quite a good piano player, but he, he was involved in, in the Nace Musical Society. So one day we were in his car, in his Volvo, heading down the road, and he was one of the first people that I remember had a CD player in the car. It was one of these portable ones that you plug in or something, I can't remember, but he had a Garth Brooks CD. Of course, I, I'd been listening to Garth Brooks stuff because, you know, so I started singing along with it as, you know, I, maybe I always do that, just happen to sing along with the track. And Henry said, you know, geez, you know, you've got a good voice. And, ah, yeah, yeah, of course I do, yeah, yeah. I know, he said, I think you should, geez, you, you, you can sing. And I think it was only then that I sort of realized, you know what, this could be what I want to do. Now, don't worry, the story is just beginning. We'll be back next week with part two of our interview with Robert Mazzell, where he tells us all about achieving the American dream in Ireland. This has been My Country Life, a Sunday World podcast. This episode was produced by Ian Malini, and the theme music is Rose Gold Renegades by Jesse Frisell. If you enjoy this episode, do consider sharing it with a friend or leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, 
I'm Eddie Rowley and this is My Country Life.